From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. In 1971, a federal court ordered New Hanover County to desegregate its schools. That order was in place for 12 years, after which the courts felt the county had finally desegregated itself and ended federal supervision. But that didn't last. By the mid-90s, segregation was creeping back in, leading to civil rights complaints and, once again, the federal government stepped in. This time, district leaders seemed to take the issue of desegregation more seriously. And in 2004, Superintendent John Morris called preventing segregation a, quote, moral responsibility. But by 2006, a shift had occurred. Under the auspices of an all-Republican board, the policy of neighborhood schools was instituted. On paper, neighborhood schools was colorblind and common sense, with students simply going to class at schools that were close to where they lived. But Wilmington is deeply segregated, with the black population largely concentrated in a few neighborhoods, mostly in the greater downtown area. And those downtown schools often have aging facilities, less experienced teachers, and less support from PTAs, among a host of other issues. So regardless of the intent, the effect of neighborhood schools was clear, a drastic resegregation of Wilmington, starting about 12 years ago. There were many who sounded the alarm about this issue. In 2017, researchers at UNC Chapel Hill's Center for Civil Rights issued a stark finding. 66% of New Hanover schools were racially imbalanced. In late 2020, the Community Relations Advisory Committee, created by the City of Wilmington and New Hanover County, found the school district had struggled to provide an equal education to all students. And that's the point. The effect of neighborhood schools is really the effect of segregation. And the effect of segregation is that lower income and minority students get a substandard education. Now, technically, this isn't news, or not new news. It's been documented in studies and reports and in the local media, including here at WHQR by our own Rachel Keith. And yet, whether through ignorance or willful denial, many people in the county seemed unaware of the problem and its historical roots. And that is what Three Star News reporters set out to change with an in-depth look at Wilmington's segregation problem in a project that ultimately took over eight months and pulled in dozens of interviews, hundreds of pages of documents, and years of backstory. The team is with us today. So why don't you guys introduce yourself? I'm Matthew Prensky. I, my official job title is Regional Investigative Reporter for the USA Today Network's NC East Group. I'm Sydney Hoover. I am the education reporter for the Wilmington Star News. Um, I'm Emma Dill. I cover the city of Wilmington, New Hanover County, and growth and development. Well, I thank you guys for being here today. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you know, about the origin of this project. I know it's been in the works for a long time and a lot of work went into it. So can you tell me a little bit about how this project started? I can take a stab at that. Um, it was something that I think for a couple years had been an idea in the newsroom to really take a look at this. Um, but for a lot of reasons, just it's such a complex topic that no one could really do it justice. And so when I came on board last summer, that was a conversation they had with me, which, you know, can you work with Sydney and Emma and can the three of you really take a hard look at this topic and figure out, you know, how to tell this story? Because it's a really complex story. Um, so we got together last summer mm -hmm. um, and 
sort of figured out, all right, how do we tell the story about how a school district in 15 years or 15 or 16 years basically went from being somewhat racially balanced to now being as segregated as it was before it was ordered to desegregate in 1971 and how that's causing just generational damage to, to thousands of black and Hispanic students and students of color in the school system. And then how do we match that with the fact that it's being caused by neighborhood segregation in Wilmington and how that's never been adjusted or fixed or, or worked on. Um, and, and it just got so complex um, that it went through multiple iterations and we had a lot of debates in the newsroom about how to, how to tell the story. You know, is it different stories? Is it one giant story? And I think we ended up with a, a, a sort of complete project that what I'm proud of at least is that it's really emotionally jarring. That's the piece of feedback that I get is it really opened people's eyes. It really, I think it left no stone unturned in sort of making it clear that this is causing damage and kids' education is being, you know, just because of a kid's, the, the color of their skin and where they live are huge determining factors in whether they get a quality education. So I think we did a really good job getting that across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the timing really lined up with you being hired because I was hired just a few months before and I think like you said, it was a conversation that was really prominent in the newsroom, especially among our upper leadership. Um, But we just didn't have anyone who could dedicate that much time to it. And so um, with me and Emma being able to help with it, but also still keep turning daily stories and then having Matthew really focus on keeping it on track and getting the bulk of it going, um, the timing really lined up. Yeah. perfectly when we all started coming into the newsroom and working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little inside baseball for people who aren't journalists, but yeah. I, I am very curious. <laughs> and I think some of our listeners, you know, really care about the process, too, and wonder how on earth do you do this when every newsroom on the, in the country is being deracinated of resources? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, this is the whole reason I was brought in is because Emma and Sydney are just constantly working on daily service. There's so much going on in this area that they are constantly writing daily stories or stories that are due at the end of the week. And I was really fortunate that they said, we don't want you to do that. We want you to focus on these big projects. And so we would do all the interviews together. We would write together. It was a very, it was a team effort, but I was, my role in this was to keep it going on the day-to-day basis, to get the data, to file the public record requests, to sort of check in with Sydney and Emma about, you know, hey, this parts that I need you to help with, or you're the subject matter expert on this because we're talking to city or county officials, or we're talking to school officials or teachers or something like that. You know, can you can you help me with that, or where do we stand with that? Um, but it was sort of a divide and conquer because I had the time to do it. Sydney and Emma are the experts on it because they cover it on a day to day basis, and so we all kind of brought our strengths to the table. Emma Dill, what what about you? And it, it did end up taking us a lot longer than we initially had planned. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a day-by-day effort, but in the end, it did end up taking months to actually organize all of our information and all of our interviews yeah. that we had done. We had hundreds of pages yeah. of research by the end of it. and You should see Matthew's binders. Oh, He's yeah. got yeah. three binders. Well, I want to ask you about this because I think a lot of times you know, a news outlet will drop one of these major pieces you know, I think about the New York Times pieces on uh, Trump's finance. Mm-hmm. And it was out of the news cycle in a week, but it probably took six months to a year to do. So I'm curious about what was the timeline a little bit about from when you guys 
sort of had the inception of this idea to actually, you know, maybe the rubber hitting the road? Sydney Hoover? Matthew and I met and um, started forming our, like, um, our outline, our plan of what we wanted to do and what we wanted to cover in early August, Yeah, maybe? July or August of last year. Yeah. And then from there, we ended up pulling Emma in because we realized that this has a lot to do with the neighborhoods as well. So then from... I was I was very involved August, September, October, and then I feel like you kind of took over and started doing the bulk of it after that when it came to editing and getting everything put together. Um, but overall, I'd say three months of just finding sources, doing interviews, then we wrote the stories, then, oh gosh, five five months probably of editing, rewriting, going and doing follow-up interviews, going and doing additional interviews, finding additional sources. Yeah. So in total, it was eight months, I'd say. Matthew? it The project mm-hmm. went through three or four solid iterations. Mm-hmm. And each time we came back, our editors, the three of us, would get into a room together. And I think the decision was made each time that this is this is a really important story. Let's get it right. Like, we don't care about a deadline. Let's get it right. This isn't right. The story as we're telling it in this iteration isn't right. So let's go back to the drawing board, go talk to more people, and 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 do it right. And so that meant talking to students. That meant talking to teachers. That meant getting an idea of what's going on inside the schools and, and not just telling it based off of the data because the data isn't really the story. The, the, the impact on the kids and, and what teachers are going through, that's the story. I appreciate that you sort of put this into the story, This the the volume of documents, but also the number of people you talk to. Probably more people than are quoted oh, yeah. in the Absolutely. Product. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the things that didn't make the final cut but maybe helped inform the project? I can I this is one thing that I that I really I really I'm glad we did this. We talked to Williston graduates and we talked to people who spent their entire careers in New Hanover County schools working to desegregate the school system. And they were threatened. They, you know, just absolutely attacked for what they were doing because they believed in it. And it didn't make it into the final story. I think that's fine. Um, but it was really it was really important to me because I can't imagine being in their shoes and seeing your life's work just erased because, you know, school boards made decisions in the last in the last 15, 20 years that said we'd rather keep kids where they are. We'd rather be convenient than doing something which prior superintendent said was morally responsible, you know, it was their moral responsibility to do. Um, so that's something I'm glad we did, even if it didn't make it into the final copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. It was really um, incredible and humbling to hear a lot of these stories that we couldn't fit into the final product, but like to hear Dr. Bellamy, the former superintendent's daughter, talk about the threats that they were getting and how her family was kind of in danger during the 70s as they were um, working to integrate the schools. And um, just a lot of these really, I mean, they tell the the story of the history of Wilmington, and it's incredible. And I wish we could have included more of that for sure. Emma. Yeah. Um, I guess I would just add there was a lot of historical research we did that was not included. We went to the library for 
like several afternoons and just weeks of like archival research that was not included at all. Well, it was included in parts Mm -hmm. in the final story, but we decided ultimately not to go that in depth with the history and to focus more on kind of the personal experiences of students and teachers um, right now. So was there anything in this project that surprised you? And and I ask that because I think it's, I don't even know if open secret is the right word. It's just sort of known that Wilmington is segregated. But in doing this work, did anything kind of catch you by surprise? I think all three of us are not, none of us are from yeah. this area or even North Carolina. And so an adjustment for me was that it was an open secret mm. and that people people all knew it. But for me, the disconnect was if you know the city's segregated, if you know the schools are segregated, if you know how dangerous that is to society and, and the damage it's causing to kids, why wouldn't you fix it? And so that was a disconnect for me where I couldn't understand why there are some people in the school system that are adamant about the way it is right now and they don't want to fix it, they don't want to change it. And yet these are some of the same people whose kids are being affected by this. And I couldn't get my head around it. I still can't get my head around it, but I just sort of had to accept it and say there's a lot of past in Wilmington that affects race relations. We can't unpack all of that in this one project. We just sort of have to accept this town has a very troubled past and that hasn't quite come to terms with it, and it still has its effects to this day in various ways. I think a very surface-level thing that amazed me is, so I'm from, they're going to laugh at me, I'm from a very white suburban area of Kansas, and for me, I rode the bus 20 minutes to school every day, and it was like a normal thing. I was on the bus 20 to 30 minutes to go to high school every day, and it wasn't for any reason other than that's the school that had room and that's the way that the um, boundaries were divided. I was two minutes from the closest high school, but the high school just simply didn't have space for all those students. So they bust me 20 to 30 minutes. And so I feel like a lot of the conversation here is around, well, we don't want our kids on the school bus for that long. And it's like, New Hanover County is not that big. Like, your kids almost never will be on a bus for as long as I was on a bus going to school every day. So I just, I think it's a difference of we're definitely in a much more densely populated area and just very different from where I grew up. But people would say, well, I don't want my kids on the bus for that long. I'm like, that's not that long. 15 minutes isn't that long. New Hanover (laughs) County is what, the second smallest county by land mass in the state? Yeah. 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 That was a very a very surface level, yeah. like not huge thing, but it was hard for me to wrap my head around. People's expectations, and, and I'm not making fun of you, but they if you tell them that, you know, they, yeah. they, they treat you like you're the old grandpa saying, like, I used to walk to school <laughs> yeah. uphill both ways with shoeboxes exactly. for shoes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to get into this because this is kind of, this is a major moving part in your reporting, is why is it bad that the schools are segregated in this way? Oof. There's a lot of answers yeah. to that. So let's start with, and this is a touchy subject for some people, but the quality of schools compared, you know, when you're looking at the, the quality of, say, a predominantly black school compared to a predominantly white school. Yeah. Uh, I think that the big things are you can just tell in this data that the state's Department of Public Instruction, if you go to a, a school that is predominantly black or predominantly black and Hispanic, it is a worse school. 
And it's a worse school because the teachers have less experience and less experienced teachers. They don't have the years of experience to know how to deal with kids who might be impoverished, might have social or emotional issues that aren't coming into school ready to learn on a day-to-day basis, let alone they haven't necessarily gone to some of the prerequisites before kindergarten. So they aren't coming in at the same levels. And so they're all over the place. And so when you package all of that into the same school, these teachers are dealing with incredible mountains to overcome. And it's not just five kids in a classroom or two kids in a classroom. It's 16 kids in a classroom, 20 kids out of 25 kids in a classroom. So you're packaging that all into one school. Meanwhile, school two, four, six miles away, that's predominantly white. All those kids went to preschool or went to some sort of pre-kindergarten education. So they have prior experience. They come from households that are more steady and stable. And so they don't have to worry about a roof over their head or where their next meal is going to come from. They haven't witnessed trauma the, the night before, and so they're not dealing with that. The teachers there are the same inexperienced teachers that after a couple of years transferred out of that minority school into a predominantly white school because it's, it's, it's steady. It's less stressful. It's less emotionally overwhelming for them. And so those schools have students that are in better places for you know, societal and, and a lot of reasons. They have better teachers. They get some of the same resources, but because those resources aren't being as overwhelmed as they are in predominantly minority schools, those resources can better accommodate the need. So it's a, it's a lot of things that go into it. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily that the schools are segregated by race, and I think that's why we pulled Emma into this. It's because it's segregated by class, and that kind of mixes with the fact that it's segregated by race. So these downtown schools, um, these kids are growing up in poverty. I mean, you're looking at, say, a kindergarten teacher who has 20 kids in her class. Well, 15 of those 20 didn't eat breakfast this morning because they can't afford it. 12 of them aren't ready to be in kindergarten because they didn't get that um preschool experience the way that a more affluent family might have access to. And so that's a lot to put on a teacher. And it's not necessarily that it's a, a, the teacher's fault. It's just how do you how do you do all that when you could just as easily transfer over to a school where kids are 85 percent kindergarten ready? They have parents and nannies and daycares who are helping them and tutors. It's it's a lot to take in. And then I'll raise the point of then you bring in the fact of cumulative advantage and cumulative disadvantage where you start from a place of disadvantage and then the school system keeps pushing you forward and you're never at grade level. You're growing farther and farther and farther behind on grade level. And so by the time you get to middle school, you're nowhere near ready to go on you know, AP classes and all those advanced classes that get you ready for college. And so it starts in elementary school and, you know, people just start going on different paths and and that's why it's so dangerous all right well we need to take a quick break but we'll be back in just a moment with star news reporters sydney hoover matthew prensky and emma dill talking about their series on segregation in wilmington and its schools you're listening to the newsroom please stay with us
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman, here with Sidney Hoover, Matthew Prensky, and Emma Dill, the Star News reporters who worked on the recent multi-part report on segregation in Wilmington schools. So the part that, to me that was, was also really fascinating, and I think people who are new to Wilmington, um, and, and many of our listeners are, just by statistically, people listening to this, there's like a 70% chance that you were not born and bred here, that you've moved here in the last 10 years. Welcome. Yeah. Um, and I, full disclosure, I am also a Yankee. Like, I am not born and bred here. I've been here for like almost two decades, but I, you know, yep. uh, I'm not, I'm not a Wilmingtonian. So, and if you move to Ogden or Porter's Neck or, you know, down to Monkey Junction, you might not get a sense of what that was like 20 years ago, which was, you know, Pine Barrens and ATV trails. So I'm glad you guys got into the sort of, co- I guess I could call it the co-development of basically, you know, Wilmington and New Hanover County and this system of segregation. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how that happened? It Very quickly, when we did the research, the school board that made these decisions, they blamed the neighborhoods. They said, don't come to us. Don't We didn't segregate the schools. The realtors did. The neighborhoods did. And so when that happened, Emma and I just pursued that. And yeah, we did start from, you know, we did start from a century ago because, you know, the story of Wilmington and why it's segregated is the same reason why a lot of cities are still segregated is because there was practices for decades with housing covenants and all sorts of things that purposely segregated the neighborhoods. And we had a a lot of great information. I mean, the housing covenants for some neighborhoods in and around downtown are still on the books, even if they can't be enforced today. And so it's, it's tangible. You can see how the neighborhoods got to where they were. I mean, there's one neighborhood where every street name is the name of a Confederate general or a high-ranking Ku Klux Klan member. Yeah. I don't even think – I don't think there actually are covenants in that neighborhood because you don't need them. If it's Stonewall Jackson Drive, like, the message is pretty loud and clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Emma, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we even, like, went back to slavery. I mean, there mm-hmm. were so many enslaved people in Wilmington, like, back before the Civil War. I mean, so we were trying to kind of figure out how – there's kind of three predominantly black neighborhoods that we had at least identified, so north side, south side, and east side. And we were trying to figure out how those areas of the city became predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, so we kind of dove into the history of that. We talked with a historian from the Cape Fear Museum um, and got kind of all of that background. Um, and then we were also kind of trying to answer why have these remained historically black neighborhoods and why are they still, um, are these families still making, like, percentages of the area median income? I mean, that's part of the reason why there's such disparities between the schools is because they're based on the neighborhoods and the neighborhoods. Um, the families aren't making as much as they are in the wider areas of town. Um, and, like, in North Side, you see it. They don't have a grocery store. It's been a food desert historically uh, for the last 20 years, so... Um, just some of those challenges kind of manifest themselves in the neighborhoods. This is a tough question, and you lose no points if you cannot answer it, because I've, I think people have been asking it for a long time. But how much credence do you give to the actual neighborhood schools argument after all of this reporting? And by that I mean, do you think that people genuinely only think about this in terms of, oh, it's our neighborhood, our kids should go to school in our neighborhood, or do you think it is just cover for either a discomfort with having their child 
uh, around low income people and black and brown people or out and out racism? It's a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, you have to acknowledge the fact that New Hanover County Schools pre-1971, when it was ordered to desegregate, tried to use a version of neighborhood schools. So, it, you know, it has been used as a segregative tool historically and even today. I mean, 75, I think 75 percent of all school systems nationwide use some form of neighborhood schools. Um, so I can see both sides of the argument. It's a great idea to have your kids go to school down the street. It's really convenient. It's awesome. And if the neighborhoods were relatively integrated, that'd be great. But I, they aren't. And I think you can even still make the argument of neighborhood schools would still work if all schools were on the same level. But they aren't. And so I think, I think my issue is people get into this idea of it's all or nothing. It's either on or off. You can't have it or you can't have it. And I don't think that's the answer. Every single expert that we talked to said it's a mix. You can have neighborhood schools, but you also have to have magnet schools that are magnetic. Mm -hmm. You also have to have resources in every school that match the needs that are in that school. You have to make sure teachers you, – you have to make sure teachers of experience also stay in the schools where that experience is needed. And so I think – and even now it still seems like that debate is – or that, that, that answer is getting lost or that thought is getting lost of – People keep getting trapped into the, oh, okay, if we don't do neighborhood schools, we have to go back to busing. No, you don't. You can have multiple solutions. You can go about this in multiple ways. People just aren't. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there are merits to both sides. Sydney, what about you? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I don't think it's everyone in Wilmington just wants to stay in neighborhood schools because they don't want their kids going to these downtown schools or whatever that. I don't think there's one extreme or another, but you look at the magnet schools and white families aren't sending their kids to Freeman and Snipes. And why is that? I mean, you could argue that they don't want to send their kids there because of community violence, quote unquote, or whatever it may be. They don't want to send them that far away from home. They also don't want to send them to a school that's ranked a D or an F, graded a D or an F by the state when their neighborhood school that's two minutes from their house is ranked in A and has phenomenal, very experienced teachers. Not that the teachers at Snipes and Freeman aren't phenomenal, but statistically they don't have as much experience. They don't have the resources that they need to make sure these kids are um, successful. And um, so I think, yeah, it's a very complex question, and I don't think there's one right answer. I think it's definitely all over the board. I definitely want to make a note, because I think you guys did a good job of, of walking this line, but it is difficult to talk about the quality of schools without talking about the quality of teachers, and that can come off as derogatory in a way. Yeah, you're blaming them. You're yeah, blaming them, yeah. and, we'll, and, I'll, and I'll get to more of that in a second. <laughs> um, but certainly, any, and we have some folks on staff here at HQR who were former teachers who would acknowledge this, that you just do not have the same skill set three years in that you have 10 years in. You're, you could be an amazing three-year teacher, but you just don't have the ability to handle ACEs, like Everest childhood events, that you would after 10 years of experience. And it's it's hard to say that without sounding like you're you know, poo-pooing the, the newer teachers. I think there's – I can't think of a profession where you aren't better after you know X amount of years in the industry. I can say in journalism, yeah, you're 10 times better after a couple of years. Absolutely. Say, yeah. Outside of contact sports where like – your joints yeah. and, your, and your brain starts yeah. to go. Like, yeah, everything yeah. else you get better with age. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I just want to make that clear because I don't want to make the case that, you know, this is just about bad teachers. But 
that's that's my handy segue into Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust, um, who has been accused of blaming teachers. And I, I, wa- I want to get this to this right away. In your reporting, you note that in both his uh, interviews with you and his written communication with you, he repeatedly just, I forget how you exactly put it, but he just failed to mention uh, the segregation of the schools or any plan to deal with that. I would definitely say he did not answer the question, our questions directly. I don't think that's, I think that's a fair way to put it. And yeah. he, even at times in our interview with him, he had sort of admitted to the fact that he wasn't necessarily answering our questions straight. And that's fine. Um, I think it is fair to say that he expressed that he doesn't think integrating schools the way that they did in the 70s when they were ordered to do so is the right answer because his argument was that kids should be able to learn and get a good education in the community that they're growing up in because you're going to feel most comfortable where you're closest to home. And I think that's a fair argument. Um, He just didn't really expand. I felt like he didn't expand much on how they were working to improve some of those schools that are falling behind. And I even asked him, but... um, the time was up in the interview and I was like, well, you could email me some data and, you know, stuff gets pushed to the side, you know, we are, we're all busy. So that didn't is, ever hear back, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's the other part of this conversation, right? And it's the same thing as with teachers. We've heard from people who have interpreted some reporting, not yours, but some reporting on this issue in general as kind of blaming, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, black students. Um, for pulling the collective uh, success rate of those classes down without really getting into this issue of, by nature of being in low-income neighborhoods, what those children are dealing with. Like, and I think, Matt, you, you laid out a lot of these things, you know, poverty, trauma, all, all of these issues. Like, if you haven't had breakfast, you know, your attention span is already shot to hell. Yeah. So the idea that in order to get that classroom to be more manageable, especially for a less experienced teacher, you're going to have to do a lot about those outside environmental things. So I, I think part of what this reporting was pointing to was, you know, some of the same things people talking about community violence have, has been pointing to. Like, this is not about putting a certain number of iPads in the schools or busing students around. There was a, a deeper problem that you guys were ultimately trying to get at. Yeah, I mean, it's not a simple fix. Mm-hmm. I wish it was a simple fix. That'd be great. It'd be easy. We could, you know, high five each other and say we fixed it. Great. Awesome. But it's not. It's a complex societal problem that that it will take the school system, you know, sitting down and actually admitting that there's a problem. It'll take the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County saying there's a problem. And the it, it everyone has to do it. You can't just have one person do it because school the school system and the city and, and county are all tied together. You know, people move to a neighborhood because there's a good school in the neighborhood. Good schools are in that neighborhood because of sometimes the people in that neighborhood. So you can't fix one problem and not the other problem. Because ultimately, and this is not just us, this is, I can't even tell you how many national experts we talk to. This is, this is the point that they make. You can't just clean one side of the screen and a screen door and expect the other side to be clean. It'll just flow through. Um, so you have to tackle it in a completely, because if you don't, it's just going to start again. Deborah Dix Maxwell, the former head of the New Hanover County NAACP and currently the president of the North Carolina NAACP, 
predicted that this would be, she called it, educational genocide. From your reporting, is that hyperbole or is that the level of seriousness that we're looking at here? I think it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, an, it's an emotionally charged statement, probably. Yeah, it's probably the most emotionally charged statement in, in all of the reporting. Yeah. Um, but I think there's data to say that Williston and, and some of the downtown schools took a nosedive in terms of performance after 2006 when the first steps were taken to resegregate and to enact neighborhood schools. So it, it's just based off of the data alone, you can say, yeah, I mean, after 2006, white kids fled, white families fled the downtown schools. And there's, you know, you can look at enrollment data and see that. You can look at school performance data and see the number of kids at grade level started to drop. Um, so it's it's a bit of both. I mean, I, it's, it's definitely, it has its merits in terms of facts and being supported by data. I don't, it, but it's definitely emotionally charged because I think, you know, she has her own opinion on this and she's very driven by it. I think the point that she was trying to get at, though, is... A fair point. I mean, the reason that I wanted to get into education reporting is because education is the American dream. That's how you achieve that. If you don't get a quality education and you can't go start a career for yourself or whatever it may be that you do when you graduate high school, where are you going to go? And that's where that um, that's where you break the cycle of poverty is through education, in my opinion. And so I think that's what she's getting at is if we keep failing these students who are already living in poverty, how are we going to break that cycle? You can't just say, well, they didn't try hard enough and that's why they ended up just like their parents, quote unquote. You have to give them a chance to get out of that. And if we're going to continue to fail students who are already in a position, already set up to fail, I mean, that's not equitable. And so I think that's the point I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that's what I took away from that. And I think it's a very real, fair point. So the obvious follow-up question for me is, if it's that serious, where is the urgency? Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. That's this, again, going back to national experts, I mean, there's not a lack of solutions. It's a lack of will. I think you you, you explicitly wrote that it was, this is a good line, this is a lack of political will. Yeah. I think it's definitely, it's... It's a big task. It's a monster. And it's scary. I mean, we've seen, you know, people who are pushing certain issues at school board meetings, they want to see change now. And so when we get into the topic of integration and making schools more equitable throughout the county, it's not an overnight fix. And I think that's scary because people want to see change happen overnight and it's just not possible. And so I Again, don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I feel like at the district level, it's scary to even think about because you're going to start working on it and you're going to form a three, five, ten year plan. And it's not going to be quick enough for people who want this done now. And I think I'll make the other point. This is a point I think a couple people made to us is redistricting. If that's one of the strategies you want to pursue and it is one of the strategies to fix segregation, it's already a controversial topic. I mean, it gets people parents heated. And it, it did that in 2006. It did that in 2010 when this was happening. And that was pre-COVID and pre-everything else that's happened. Well, and, and look now at the response to this reporting. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. So it's 
it's an emotional topic and arguably a very emotional time for education. In the middle of an election season. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that too. That yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not for nothing. Um, so, yeah, let me ask, what has, what has the feedback been like? I think there have been a lot of people. I mean, I, people have reached out to us individually, all the sources that we talked to, and they loved it. Yeah. I think they really appreciate us taking a look at this. Obviously, there were a couple people that didn't like it, and that's fine. Um, yeah. I am the person that goes and reads all the Facebook comments because oh, gosh, I want yeah. to know what people are saying. And I have to remind myself that, you know, sometimes I, I can't take that to heart, but there are – it's certainly mixed. There are a lot of people who are very, very positive and um, – thought it was I just great reporting and really told the story of education in Wilmington. But there are also people who obviously want to keep the shutters on and not look at – they don't want to know that it's an issue or they want to say, well, I've seen a lot of comments and gotten emails from people that, well, this is a parent problem. The parents need to do more to help their kids out um, and that's why they're failing. And it's like, well, that's a whole other topic we could get into. Like you can't just – be blind to it and ignore it. it. It's happening. So very mixed reactions, I'd say. You're very brave to go in the comment section. Um, I know. I know. I, I have to. I, we've had this conversation before where I tell her you can't do that stuff. It is toxic. I can't help it. I, I want to know. Otherwise, it's going to drive me crazy. I want to know what people are saying. I have, I have mixed feelings about this. When I worked at Port City <laughs> Daily, when I was the assistant editor, one of my jobs was to moderate uh, Facebook and what it what a fool's errand. Yeah. You guys. Yeah. yeah. I don't pay attention to I it. I mean, I'm not going to lie. The people that are commenting on Facebook posts are also sending me emails. I don't know about you guys, but they are sending they send me emails on a weekly basis. So, I'm I'm hearing it anyways. So, might as well just get the full experience. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that shows that it made an impact. Exactly. Even if it's like negative feedback, it's like, well, they read it and now they know something new about the school yeah. system. They know it's segregated. And you know the negativity is coming from the fact that it makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So. So. Job, it, it, job well done. Job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well done. Uh, you don't have to take the bait on this one, but I am curious what you think about Faust laying some of this situation at the feet of the media, saying that um we only, we collectively, and maybe you specifically, you three specifically, are only reporting the negatives and and glossing over or suppressing the positives. I will take a stab at that. Please. Yeah. Um, there have been a lot of issues over the years with New Hanover County Schools. I'm not going to dive into it. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say that. I think it's a reporter's job to tell both sides of the story. But when you have all the issues that the school systems had, yeah, the, the coverage is going to sway in one direction. It's not necessarily because we don't want to tell the positive stories about New Hanover County Schools. It's just that they've had a lot of issues. And if, you know, my methodology when I, as a journalist is if you're doing something great, fantastic. Tell me about it because I'm happy to, to cover it. But when you're as segregated as you were in the 1960s in Jim Crow, yeah, we're going to talk about that. So – he made a lot of comments during our interview and mm. made his feelings that he didn't like us very clear, and that's fine. He's entitled to his opinion. I respect him for that. He might not be my best friend and the guy I'm going to go get a beer with, but, you know, we have a job to do. Yeah. We're not here to be best friends with him. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that these issues were inherited by the superintendent. They were not his doing. And so I think... I understand where he's coming from because I'm sure he 
takes a lot of that on his own shoulders when parents are upset. And it's easy to say, well, he's the face of the school district. It's his fault. But really, he's only been here a year and a half, two years. So he inherited a lot of this. And so I understand his frustration. Um, But at the same time, I stand by my reporting. I don't think I'm sensationalizing anything. I'm not just pulling issues out of the air and saying, oh, I'm going to make this a problem. These are things that we are hearing about from parents, from advocates. They're things that are coming up at school board meetings. That's where my ideas for stories come from. And then I go out into the community community and talk to people about it. So like Matthew said, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. And I totally get where that is coming from because I'm sure he has a lot coming at him all at once, inheriting all these issues that have stacked up over the years. Um, But I don't think that's the media's doing either. All right. Well, we need to take one more quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment with Star News reporters Sidney Hoover, Matthew Brensky, and Emma Dill talking about their series on segregation in Wilmington and its schools. You're listening to The Newsroom. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with Sidney Hoover, Matthew Prensky, and Emma Dill, the star news reporters who worked on the recent multi-part report on segregation in Wilmington schools. So before I let you guys go, and I appreciate all of your time, I do want to talk about uh, solutions. Yeah. Because you didn't just sort of lay this at their feet and walk away. So I know it's it's complicated, but can we unpack some of the ways that this could be addressed that you guys yeah. look cool. into through your reporting? Gladly. We've got a lot, and we have some we're, – we're working on follow-up reporting. I mean, after the story – That was my other story, question was, yeah. Yeah, after the story came out, um, our editors sat Matthew and I down and were like, we want you to keep at it. We want more. Um, we want to keep covering this because there's so much that didn't make it into the story, like we said earlier. Um, I think the main – Things that I'm interested in learning more about are magnet schools Um, because there are successful magnet schools out there. It's just a matter of what's going to draw people in and make them want to go to those magnet schools. Um, And then the other thing is our school district, our school board, it's it's a, a general election. It's not broken up by districts. So the representation on the school board isn't really there all the time. Um, I mean, when you look at the school di- or the school board right now, they represent only a handful of schools, and they don't represent the downtown schools. Although some of them would argue that you know their kids do go to those schools, but they don't live there. Um, so I would like to see what impact it would make if we did have representation on the school board. Brunswick County Schools elects by district. So right now, seat three and seat five are up for election, and that covers Leland and I don't remember what the other one was. But why are we not doing that in New Hanover County so that we have a seat that specifically is for someone who lives in the 28401 zip code or whatever it may be? Um, I think that would really change the conversations that are going on 
at the school board level? Yeah, I mean, let's just unpack two solutions. Magnet schools. You can't just put paint on a wall and say, ooh, this is a magnet school. It's, ma- it's magical. Come. That's not how it works. You have to actually make sure there's a program there or some sort of education there that attracts people. And when you do that, you naturally create integrated schools by no forcible means, no busing, no, none of that. You don't have to bus in the 21st century. There are ways to do this that aren't as forceful. The other big solution is redistricting. And you don't have to redistrict entire, the entire school system. There are ways where you can look at schools neighboring each other and say, if we adjust those lines, um, we can fix it. You know, Roland Grice and uh, Williston are two, is, is an example that national experts gave to us of if you adjust those two schools because they have wildly different um, enrollment figures in terms of, of race and socioeconomic, if you adjust those lines, you can make a huge difference. Um, Without putting a kid on a bus for yeah. a ridiculous amount of time. Yeah. Again, it goes back to people think it's an on or off solution, and it's not. The only thing is you have to be you have to be purposeful in doing it, and you have to explore all the solutions. You can't just say, I don't want to do redistricting because we just did in 2019, and I don't want to open that can of worms again. It's going to take an all-hands approach because it's such a massive problem, and there's so many parts parts to this problem. Well, is there anything else you guys would want to say about the importance of this project or what comes next or, or anything else? Matthew? I think I think for me it's the fact that it's not over. Yeah. Right? I mean it's not just a huge dump of reporting on this topic and we're going to forget about it and move on. Like We're going to keep talking about it because it's going to continue to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I'm excited about. Um, I think I'm also excited about the reception. You know, yeah, it was positive and negative, but at least people are paying attention. Mm-hmm. If it comes up at town halls and board meetings and yeah. household conversations. At least we're getting the community talking about it. So there's a chance that it might get fixed. Sydney, thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say it's definitely something that got people talking. I think as journalists, sometimes we can hit our deadline and then just forget about it and move on. Um And I think that this topic is way too important to do that. And clearly the community agrees. I mean, like you said, we're talking about it at school board meetings and town halls and like things are already happening in the community that we're seeing kind of in response to this. And so I think it's important that we don't just say, okay, we finished it, check, mark that off our to-do list, let's move on to the next problem. Um, Because people will forget about it. And this isn't something that we should just forget about. Um, So we definitely have done some brainstorming on ways to continue coverage of it, um, both in a positive light and a constructive, like here are things that need to be improved light. I mean, there are things going on in the school district and in the community to try and um, alleviate some of these issues. And so we want to make sure that we're covering both sides of that. Emma? I was also just going to add, I mean, I'm really glad that we were able to add kind of the city and county aspect of this story. So it wasn't just focused solely on education. I mean, that was obviously the main primary focus. Um, But we also kind of added the context of neighborhood segregation. I think that's something that is really important for people to also take away from this story, that we are still a segregated city. Um, So even though like education segregation is the main focus, we still need to kind of recognize um, for city leaders and county leaders that we still have neighborhood segregation um, throughout this area. I think that's a whole other conversation, Mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah. So that's kind of fodder for future stories for me for like more in-depth um, things and just how the demographics of this area are changing so much. Um, I'm sure we'll have future reporting on that as well. Well, I would be happy to have you guys back to talk <laughs> about this and that. And uh, I, I thank you all for your time, Emma, Sydney, Matt. Thank you so much thank for having so much. us. Thank you. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. If you want to go deeper into this story, we'll have links to all the Star News reporting on segregation in Wilmington's schools on our show page. We'll also have a link to the actual audio of Star News interview with New Hanover County Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust. And you can hear some of the contention that Matthew Prensky was talking about. And you'll catch an interesting moment where Faust blames the media's reporting on negative stories for his difficulty in recruiting faculty of color. It's worth a listen. We'll also have links to reporting by Alexandria Sands at Port City Daily and Rachel Keith here at WHQR, along with the 2017 UNC Chapel Hill report and the damning 2020 report from the Community Relations Advisory Committee. Okay, with that, our thanks to Star News journalists Sidney Hoover, Matthew Prensky, and Emma Dill, and, of course, our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Fornell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and you can find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.